It's good to have you guys with us on this Father's Day. I'm excited about what I get to talk about this morning. I think this will be one of the more important sermons I ever give. Uh, Let me start with a question. Some of you out there are dating. Some of you are engaged. Let me ask you, imagine that I could sit down with you, with the two of you, for two hours and, and ask you a few questions and watch you. And then after those two hours, I could tell you, with better than 80% certainty, whether your relationship will work out or not. Whether you'll be married in a strong relationship or ten, in 10 years or split up and headed for divorce. Would you want to know? If I could sit down with you in two hours and tell you where your relationship is headed, would you want to know? Well, in fact, there's researchers, four researchers in particular, who have learned how to do exactly that. Four researchers who have spent years studying human relationships, and and they spent decades following 135 couples. They followed them for 12 years. And um, every year, every other year, they would sit down with each couple and spend a long period of time asking them a a whole battery of questions. They would collect all of this information about each couple, and then they would process that information and study it. And what they discovered from all of these reams of information is that there was one primary key that would determine whether a marriage would work out or not. Whether a marriage would grow and thrive or whether it would die. Now with that one primary key in mind, they found that they could sit down with an engaged couple for just two hours. And at the end of that two hours, they could tell them with 80 to 90% accuracy whether their marriage will work out or not. That's the power of that one primary key. It determined everything for a relationship. So would you like to know what it is? You want to know what is determinative for whether your relationship will work out or not. It's communication. Can you communicate well when tensions are high? That's everything. That's it. If you know how to communicate well in a tense, difficult conversation, then your marriage will do well. If you can't do it, then your marriage is not going to work out well. That's the plain truth that they discovered. It is absolutely determinative. Every relationship is built on your ability to communicate well when tension is high. That's not just true for marriage. They found that it's true of every relationship, parents to kids, kids to parents, relationship at work, relationship among roommates, relationships with friends, with neighbors. Every relationship is built on an ability to communicate especially an ability to communicate in the midst of a difficult conversation. If, if you can do that well, if you can communicate well when tensions are high, then your relationships thrive, they grow, they last. If you can't, then your relationships falter and fail. And so this morning, I am excited to get to talk with you guys about this subject of communication. I've been looking for an open week to finally get to talk to you about how we communicate with one another in difficult conversations, in difficult situations. I'm going to lay out for you guys this morning biblical principles and modern research that will help you learn how to communicate well with each other when tensions are high. We're going to talk about a number of different scenarios. This is for all kinds of different relationships. I'm going to give you principles that will help you when your wife comes to you angry because of something you said the other day. You'll know how to respond to that. 
When your roommate comes to you and, and they have failed to do the dishes once again and you are upset and you know it is finally time to address this thing, you'll know how to enter into that conversation. When your child slams the door in your face and tells you they wish you weren't their parent, you will know how to engage in that conversation. When a coworker comes to you and accuses you of doing something wrong that you did not do, you will know how to engage in that situation from these biblical principles that I want to lay out for you this morning. So we're going to talk about how to speak the truth in love when emotions are high. When conversations are tense, I'm going to lay out for you guys biblical principles that will help you to communicate well. This is essential for any relationship to work. Without these principles, your relationships will falter and fail. So I'm going to cover a lot of ground this morning and give you, give you fair warning ahead of time. This subject, communication, is far bigger than anything I could cover in one morning. So this morning, all I can do is just give you an overview of the most important lessons that God has taught me over the years about how to communicate well in tense moments. So I'm going to overview, but even just giving you an overview of these principles, it's still going to be a fire hose this morning. Lots of material to cover for you. And so this is what I want to ask you to do. As I'm speaking this morning, I want, you, I want to ask you to either take notes that you will review tonight while it's still fresh in your mind, or if you're not a note-taking kind of person, I want to ask you to download my notes this afternoon. I will post them on both Facebook and Twitter. They'll be up on our website this evening. I want to ask you to download them and read back through them. We're going to cover way too much material this morning for it all to sink in. You're going to need to be exposed to it a couple times. You're going to need to give it time. Think it through. Meditate on it. Reflect on it. Let it sink in so that you can apply it. That is essential if you want this stuff to affect your relationships and help you to communicate well. Now, if you're not so much a read-the-notes kind of guy, you're just more of an auditory person, this sermon will be online, I believe, tonight, so you can listen to it again. I encourage you to do that. You're going to need to be exposed to these principles multiple times for them to sink in deeply. So let's get started. Let's begin to lay out these biblical principles and modern research that will help us to learn how to communicate well with one another when the stakes are high. That's essential to strong relationships. Here's where I'm headed, a little roadmap for you of what we're going to cover this morning. First, I'm going to give you guys two principles that we have to get right before the conversation begins. You want to communicate well, you got to get these things right first. Two things. Then I'm going to talk to you about four bad habits that all of us have that will destroy relationships. They destroy communication and the relationship falters. So four bad habits that you need to avoid. Then I'm going to give you four necessary ingredients to good communication. If you want to be a good communicator, even when things get tense, these are the four things you must regularly put into conversations. So that's where we're headed this morning. Let's jump right in with the two things that you have to get right first. A lot of people assume that communication begins when you start talking. Actually, it begins way before that. Good communication begins before the conversation ever does. Good communication begins with two things that you get right with yourself ahead of time. If you don't get these two things right with yourself, you will never communicate well. You got to get these two things right first. First thing you got to get right, you got to learn to respect the power of words. 
So this weekend, I got to cash in the Christmas presents that my dad gave me. It was track time at the Texas World Speedway. So I got to go out and drive really fast, which I really enjoy. But as I got to the speedway, I was feeling a little bit nervous. And I, and I went in, and before they'd even let you get in the car, uh, you have to take a class, an orientation, got to be go through this instruction. And then they get you in the car, and it takes a while because they got to strap you into this really tight five-point harness, and you got to put a helmet on. And I just, I, I just felt like really a little nervous as, as all this is going. On. I was really focused. I was really intense. I, I could just see how serious this situation was. Now, why was I so focused? Why was I feeling nervous? Well, because the activity I was about to participate in was inherently dangerous. Driving next to a cement wall at triple digit speeds is not cupcake. You've got to take that stuff seriously. When something is dangerous, we take it seriously. Now, that's an obvious thing to apply to, to racing. But what does it have to do with communication? Come on, we're speaking words all the time. You've been speaking words for decades. What's the big deal with talking? But what we need to realize is that communicating with another person is probably the most dangerous thing you will do today. Proverbs puts it this way. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Tongue is way more powerful than a car. The tongue can give life or take it away. Another proverb, 12, 18. There's one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The tongue is powerful, incredibly powerful. It can, it can wreak incredible harm on people. It can do damage like a sword. It can leave you damage that lasts for the rest of that person's life. Now, I'm pretty sure I don't have to prove that truth to you. Everyone in this room is old enough. You have seen the power of words to do harm. You've seen the 40-year-old guy who is just shut down in life. He is so weighed down by something mean his dad said when he was eight years old. You've seen the woman who, who can't help but get depressed when she sees herself in a mirror because of something a friend said in junior high. You've seen a marriage that is on the rocks because of a foolish word said in the midst of a heated argument. You know the power of words. They can destroy. They can ravage far more powerful than a fast car. Words can destroy people. They can be a tool for incredible harm. But on the flip side, they can also be a tool for incredible good. As this verse says, your words can be like medicine. They can bring healing. They can bring restoration. They can convict of sin and lead someone to repentance. Words can bring healing and salvation. Words are powerful. You got to respect that. You have to recognize the power of your words, either to do great good or great evil. So when you're getting ready to sit down and have a significant conversation with your spouse or your friend or your roommate or your coworker, you need to wake up for a moment and realize what I'm about to do is inherently dangerous. You need to put both hands on the wheel. You need to wake up and you need to pay attention. Words are serious stuff. Communication matters because words are so powerful. You got to respect the power of words. That's the first thing to get right. Second thing to get right ahead of time, before you sit down to have the conversation, you need to fill your cup at the cross. Fill your cup at the cross. All of us have deep emotional needs, even us guys. We would prefer not to acknowledge that, but we do. We all have deep emotional needs. We need to feel loved. We need to feel cared for. We need to feel respected. We need to believe that someone will care if we disappear. 
Those are deep emotional needs that all of us have. We cannot help needing those things. But we can choose where we go to meet those needs. You can choose where you go. You can either go to God to meet those deep emotional needs or you can go to other people. Now, of those two options, which do you think will work? Going to God. That's the only option that works because only God can meet your deepest emotional needs. Other people cannot. There's no hope for other people to meet your deepest longings. As Blaise Pascal so eloquently put it, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person and it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God. More often than not, when a conversation between two people fails, the reason is because one or both of those people is trying to fill their God-shaped vacuum with something the other person cannot provide. You're trying to meet your deepest emotional needs, to be loved, to be secure, to be cared for. You're trying to get that from the other person. They can't do it. Only God can fulfill those needs. So the conversation, it's doomed from the beginning. It's doomed from the outset because you are trying to get something from the other person they will never be able to provide. My youth pastor in high school had a really helpful yet fairly graphic way of helping us understand this. So this kind of conversation between two people who are trying to meet their deepest needs from the other person, it's like two leeches stuck together trying to suck blood out of each other. That's never going to work. Leeches feed off blood. They have no blood to provide. They they cannot give blood to either other. It's a zero-sum game. They're going to lose. Two leeches hooked together are going to die. So will your relationships. If you are trying to fill that God-shaped vacuum in your life, those deepest emotional needs you have from other people, they will never be able to provide what you need. Only God can do that. And so if you want a conversation to go well, then before you ever sit down to talk, you need to go to the Lord. You need to go to God to meet your deepest needs, to be loved, to be secure, to be cared for, to be valued. You got to look for those things from him. Go to God to meet your needs. Now, the good thing is God has promised to meet those needs. God has promised he will always meet your deepest needs. Second Peter 1. Verses three and four. Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us, what? Everything. Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us. I want you to notice, what's the verb tense of the underlined verb? What's the tense of that verb? It's past tense. He has provided. He has granted. It's not future. He will grant it to you. No, he's already given it to you. You already have everything you will ever need in life from God. It's already already provided, already yours. No, he's not saying he's already given you everything you may ever want, everything you may ever desire, but everything you will ever need pertaining to life and godliness is already yours. It already belongs to you. That's where you go to get your needs met. Now, this is what it does for you in a conversation. When Julie and I sit down, Julie's my wife, when she and I sit down to have a significant conversation, when I sit down with Julie, I remind myself from this verse that I need what from my wife? What do I need from my wife in that conversation? Nothing. I don't need anything from Julie. 
I will never need anything from Julie. Now, there are things I want from my wife. There are things I hope to get from my wife. But there is nothing I need from her because God has already provided everything for me. And because of that, when I sit down with Julie, now I'm not a leech. I'm not trying to get from her something that that my life will be incomplete if I don't have it. Instead, I'm in a position where I can give, where I can bless her, where I can meet her desires and her wants because I'm good. I'm taken care of. God has already provided for me everything I need. Now, how do you apply this? Two steps. Number one, make sure that you have received this promise through faith in Jesus. That's how you receive this promise. That's how this verse becomes true for you. You place your faith in Jesus. God's love, his acceptance, his forgiveness, his grace, it comes to you as a free gift. It's not something you have to earn. You don't have to work for God's acceptance. You don't have to merit his love by coming to church. It's a free gift. It's yours the moment you believe that God is offering you eternal life through the death of his son. That Jesus died in your place so that you could be forgiven and then rose from the dead so you could live forever. The moment that you believe that good news, then this passage is true of you. So that's the first step. Make sure you have received this promise through faith in Jesus. The second step, for those of us who have received this promise through faith in Jesus, for us, our application point is we need to believe it. You got to choose to believe 2 Peter 1, 3 to 4. I would encourage you actually, strongly encourage you to memorize these two verses. At least the underlined phrase, commit it to memory and then remind yourself on a daily basis. This is true of you. Whether you're willing to admit it or not, it's true. If you've trusted in Jesus, then all of your needs are met, period. They're done. So what do you need today from your spouse? Nothing. What do you need today from your mom and dad? Nothing. What do you need today from your kids? Nothing. What do you need today from your roommate? Nothing. What do you need today from your friends? Nothing. You don't need anything from them because God has already given you everything through Jesus Christ. If you want relationships to work well, if you want to have good communication in a relationship, you got to go to the cross first. You got to meet your needs with the Lord, with Jesus. Let him fill you up. And then when you get together to have this challenging conversation, you come from a position of abundance rather than a position of desperation. Two leeches stuck together cannot talk well. They can't communicate well. There's no relationship there. Don't be a leech. Fill your cup at the cross. Then when you sit down to have the conversation, you're in a position to give rather than take. That's essential. You will never communicate well until you fill your cup at the cross. Absolutely essential. So two things that you got to get right before you sit down to have the conversation. You have to respect the power of your words. Believe that they matter. Believe that they're powerful for good or for evil. And second, you got to fill your cup at the cross. you got to go to the Lord and let him meet the deepest needs of your heart. If you'll get these two things right, then there's hope for you to have a good conversation, to have a strong relationship and good communication. If you don't get these right, then you're doomed. Okay, so get these right ahead of time. Two principles you got to get right before you sit down to talk. Now, with that done, I want to lay out for you guys, I want to show you four habits 
that you need to avoid. So these are two things you get right ahead of time. Now, when you sit down and talk, when the conversation begins, there are four bad habits that you need to be looking for. Four bad habits that every one of us in this room suffer from. At least one of these habits will be yours. We we each have unique personalities, but all of us will tend towards one of these four bad habits in the midst of a tense conversation. When your emotions go up, bad habits come out. That's just the way it works. We're sinners. We're full of bad habits. We've been learning them since we were babies. They're there. When things get tense, those bad habits have a way of coming out. Now, those four researchers I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon who studied those 135 couples, they saw a lot of good habits and they saw a lot of bad habits. They put all the bad habits together and they found that they fell into four basic types of bad habits that will destroy a relationship. And they found that every, all 135 couples tended towards at least one of those bad habits. All of us will tend towards at least one of these. The key was, this is what determined whether a marriage would work or not. Did the couple fight their bad habits? Did they fight their bad habits? The bad habits are there. You got them. When they come out in the midst of a tense situation, did the couple push back against those habits? Did they see them and watch out for them and resist them? If they did, then the marriage works. If they didn't, the marriage fails. It's as simple as that. You got to know your bad habits so you can watch out for them. And when you see them creeping up, resist them. This exercise of identifying your bad habit, this has proven to be one of the most helpful things to me and my marriage that I have ever done. And my wife, Julie, would say the same thing. This is it. Been married for 10 years now. This is it. This is the big thing that has helped us more than anything else. Discovering our bad habits so that we can look for them and resist them. It's helped me at work. It's helped me with my friends and my family. It will help you in every way. So let me walk through these four habits that these researchers identified that destroy communication. The first is called escalation. Escalation is is when someone hurts you and so you hurt them back worse. This is the bad habit of someone who's a fighter. So so you're hit and now you're going to hit them back and you're going to hit them harder. Here's what it looks like. Here's an example. Let's, let's take a hypothetical married couple, Ted and Amy. Here's what escalation looks like. Amy notices that Ted didn't take out the trash, and so she says, Ted, you forgot to take out the trash yet again. Well, Ted now feels hurt. He feels attacked, and so he pushes back. Fine, fine, quit nagging me, Amy. Now Amy's upset, so she responds, I wouldn't nag if you just weren't so irresponsible. Man, now she's attacking his character. She's taking it deeper. Well, Ted hits back in kind. Irresponsible. I'm out earning a living all day and you call me irresponsible? You are ungrateful. I can't stand living with you. Amy hits the parting shot. Well, why don't you just leave then? No one's stopping you. That's a rather extreme example that happens all the time to marriages in our country. One partner to the other. Bam, 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 bam. Up, up, up. That's escalation. You fight back. When you're hurt, you hurt back worse. That's the first bad habit they identified that will destroy any relationship. Escalation. Second, invalidation. Invalidation, and invalidation, when things get tense, when things get emotional, rather than hitting back against the other person, you simply diminish or dismiss how the other person feels. So you don't fight back, you just want to set it aside. You want to get rid of of their hurt, of their anger, of whatever they're feeling. So let me give you a couple examples. Example one, your wife comes to you and she says, you hurt my feelings when you told that joke at the party last night. And you respond, 
come on, sweetie, get a sense of humor. We're just having fun. You're making too big a deal of this. That's invalidation. You just diminished the validity of her emotions. You just said basically you're a fool for taking that seriously. That's invalidation. Here's a second example. A friend comes to you at lunch really shaken up by a bad performance review that he got at work and you respond to him, well, it wasn't that bad. Hey man, I'd, I'd be happy to get an evaluation as good as that at my job. You just, you just need to give it to the Lord and quit worrying about it. Well, you just invalidated his feelings. You just told him that's no big deal. You need to give it to the Lord. Quit feeling that way. You just diminished his right to feel sad. You didn't connect with him at all. You didn't share with him at all. We do this all the time, and by we, I especially mean us husbands. Our wives come to us with a problem, and what do we want to do? We want to fix it as fast as we can, right? Yeah, you all saw that video online this week. It's not about the nail. We want to fix things. We want to fix it so it can be put away. We don't want this pain, so, so let's fix it so we can set it aside and not engage in your pain. And, and what we don't realize when we're trying to rush to fix something is you're invalidating your wife. You're basically telling her, you're just a problem for me to fix as fast as I can. I don't want to empathize with you. I don't want to experience life with you. I just want to fix you and set you aside. When you rush to fix something, you invalidate the feelings of the other person. So invalidation happens all the time. Second bad habit that'll destroy a relationship. Third bad habit, these researchers discovered negative interpretations. This is the habit of assuming the worst in a relationship or in a conversation. So the other person, the person you're talking to, he or she says or does something that could be interpreted in multiple ways and you assume the worst possible interpretation. Let me give you a couple examples. When I was in high school, I was not at all confident around girls. Really nervous. I was a nerd and I knew it. And every girl in the high school felt out of my league. And so that was all of high school for me. I got to my senior year and finally, after years of being goaded by my friends, finally, I got up the courage to ask out a girl that I liked. And, and shockingly, she said yes. I couldn't believe it. The conversation ended all of a sudden because I didn't expect it. I didn't know what to do with a yes. But it ended and we went our separate ways. And a couple days later, a couple days before the date, she came back to me and she said, Blake, I'm sorry, I forgot. It's my grandmother's birthday on Friday night and I need to stay home with my family. I, I can't go out. Now, what did my low self-esteem lead me to assume immediately? She's making an excuse to get out of a date she never wanted to go on in the first place. And so as quickly as possible, I brought that conversation to an end and never asked her out again. Here's the funny thing. 15 years later, my cousin, who was friends with the girl, and I are sitting down and talking, and she asked, you know, why did you, why did you never ask her out again? She actually really liked you. That grandmother thing was real. She had a party that night. That relationship never got off the ground because of my bad habit of assuming the worst possible interpretation. Negative assumptions. Here's another example that will ring home for those of you who are married. Let's set up Ted and Amy again, our hypothetical married couple. Um, Amy has, has observed over the years that Ted always seems a little standoffish from her parents. And so she wonders, does, does Ted really like my parents? Does he, does he love them? Okay, so it's summer. It's this summer, and Amy says to Ted, uh, we should start looking into plane tickets to go visit my parents this holiday. Well, as soon as Ted hears that, what his mind jumps to is the budget, which is really stretched. Man, they're they are almost out of money. The budget is really tight. And so he says, you know, Amy, I, I was wondering if we can really afford it this year. Well, what does Amy assume? Amy assumes he's making an excuse to not go. And so in anger, she responds, my parents are very important to me, Ted, even if you don't like them. I'm going with or without you. 
what happened? She fell prey to the bad habit of making negative interpretations. Ted said something that was open for interpretation. Is he being real? Is he being honest that it's about the budget? Or is he just making an excuse to get out of seeing her parents? Which option is it? Which did she choose to believe? She jumped to the negative, to the worst possible explanation. That happens all the time. We all tend to do that. You rush to a negative interpretation. That shuts the communication down. The relationship is ruined if you are habitually assuming the worst, jumping to the worst possible interpretation. That's the third bad habit that will destroy a relationship. Here's the fourth. Withdrawal and avoidance. This one is really easy to explain. Withdrawal and avoidance is simply when a relationship gets tense, you either shut down or you run away. You either shut down or you run away. You don't want to participate in this tense, emotional conversation, so you look for the eject button. That's what this habit does. Okay, so the avoidance side of this, this is like if you're at work, you're sitting in your office and somebody knocks on the door, it's a coworker, and he comes in and he says, you know, I need a half hour with you sometime soon to talk to you about something you did that really frustrated me. And then you pick up your calendar and you look at it and it's, it's really open. You don't have a lot going on, but you say, man, my week is booked up. Maybe sometime next week. That's avoidance. You're making excuses, doing whatever you can to prevent the uncomfortable conversation from happening. Withdrawal is similar. Withdrawal is when you get trapped in the hard conversation. You can't get out of it. You're, you're there. Emotions go up and you look for the way out, the fastest possible way out. An extreme case would be you just get up and leave the room. That happens sometimes. Get up and leave the room. A a more common case would be you are in the midst of a tense conversation and you agree immediately or say whatever is needed to get the conversation to end as fast as possible. There's no real communication going. You're just looking for the quickest way to bail. Okay, so your wife comes to you and she says, man, you, you really hurt me by what you said the other day. And rather than engage with her about that and talk with her about that, you just say, sorry, sorry, babe, you're right. I shouldn't have said that. I'll never say it again. Oh, hey, look, our show's about to be on. You, you end the conversation as fast as you can and change the subject because you want out. That's withdrawal. That will destroy relationships. If left unchecked, that'll shut a relationship down because no real communication can happen when one partner keeps hitting the eject button. Okay, so look at that list. Every one of us in this room defaults, tends towards at least one of those bad habits when a conversation gets tense. Which is yours? Which is your bad habit? If you tell me you don't have one, I'll tell you you're lying. Every one of us in this room has one. Here's mine. I'll get real with you guys for a minute. I'm a number four guy. That's me. I'm a natural people pleaser. That was my role in my family growing up. I would smooth things over. If things are tense, I will say or do whatever is required to bring harmony, to bring peace. Now, I don't get up and leave. That's not really my style. I will just quickly say whatever I have to say to get this conversation to end, to to calm down. Now that I know that number four is my bad habit, that has changed everything for me. I know that's my bad habit, so I pray about it. I ask God to give me courage to stay in a hard conversation. And when I'm in a conversation, I look out for that. I'm I'm watching for that temptation to bail. And as soon as I feel, as soon as I feel like I want to bail from this, I tell myself, Blake, suck it up. It's time to fight against that temptation. Put both hands on the wheel. Be a man, come on. I'm looking out for that bad habit because I've identified it, prayed about it, now I can resist it. You need to do the same thing. 
You need to identify right now which is your bad habit. You need to pray regularly, not just today, but regularly for God to give you help to grow out of that habit, to resist it. And then when you sit down and you're talking to someone and something gets tense, you need to pay attention. Put both hands on the wheel and look for that bad habit to come climbing out of you. Because it will at some point. You'll be tempted to go that way. As soon as you feel that temptation, you push back, you fight it. That's what makes relationships last. Again, that's what the researchers found. All these 135 couples, it wasn't about which couples had bad habits and which didn't. All of them had bad habits. The question is which couples fought their bad habits. If they resisted their bad habits, those marriages grew, thrived, and survived. If they didn't, those marriages ended in divorce. As simple as that. So identify your bad habit, pray about it, watch out for it. When you see it, fight back against it. Those are the four things that you got to avoid. For good communication to happen in any relationship, any relationship at all, those four things you got to identify and resist. They will destroy your relationships. Now that we've talked about four things that you got to avoid, let me give you four things that you need to include. Four necessary ingredients for any communication to happen, for any conversation to go well between two people. If you want your conversations to work, you need to throw these four things in it. Think about it as a good conversation is like baking a cake. You got to have the right ingredients in there, all of them, for the cake to come out well. You need all four of these things in your conversations to have good communication, to have a strong relationship. The first is grace. Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Let your speech be seasoned with grace. What does that mean? What what is Paul trying to tell us here? Well, let me share some other research with you. Those four researchers and many other researchers have discovered, both Christian and non-Christian researchers have discovered that for good communication to happen in a conversation, both partners have to feel safe. You got to have safety for good conversation to happen. Now, by safety, they're not talking about physical safety, although certainly that would be included. You're not going to communicate well if you're afraid of violence happening. What they're talking about is relational safety. Both people have to feel safe in that relationship. You have to feel like this relationship is going to endure. It will be safe no matter what happens in this particular conversation. Whatever we say, whatever we do in this conversation, it is not going to jeopardize the safety of our relationship with one another. If safety is present, then communication happens. If safety is absent, then communication is impossible. So how do you create safety in a conversation? How do you make the other person feel safe in that relationship through grace? You give them grace. Now, what does grace mean? What's the simple definition? We say it all the time. What is grace? Grace is when you give someone something good they don't deserve. You give someone something good they don't deserve. Now, what does that look like in a conversation? You're sitting down and and talking to someone. What does it look like to give them something good they don't deserve? Four practical things. Number one, you reaffirm your unconditional love and acceptance for them. Even if the conversation is tense and things are crazy and falling apart, you reaffirm that you love them. You reaffirm that they are safe with you. You reaffirm your commitment to this relationship. This is true in marriage. When a marriage gets tense, both partners need to look for opportunities to remind one another that, hey, I love you. No matter what happens here, I love you. I'm going to always love you. You're safe with me. 
This happens all the time with parents and kids. A kid will tell his parents, I hate you. I wish you were not my parent. What do you as a parent need to do in that moment? You need to resist your urge to have justice and you need to give grace. You need to remind your child, no matter what you say, I'm always going to love you. I'm always going to be your parent whether you want me to be or not because you're safe here. That's grace. You don't give them the justice, the vengeance that they deserve. You instead give them grace by reaffirming the safety and security of that relationship. You remind them you love them, that you care about them, that that's not going to change. So look for opportunities to reaffirm the relationship. Men who are married, don't wait for your wives to ask, do you still love me? If they have to ask it, you have failed. You don't want to put them in that position. You want to be proactively reaffirming your love for them, looking for opportunities to remind them that you love them, that you accept them, and that that's not going to change, no matter how this conversation goes. It's the first thing. Second step to give grace, surround your rebukes with encouragement. In any relationship, there will be a moment when you have to say something painful to the other person. When you have to point out something they've done wrong, a sin in their life, a weakness in their life, something they're not aware of, you're going to have to confront them about something. The way to share confrontation with grace is to surround it with encouragement. You encourage, you confront, you encourage. I have a friend who calls that an encouragement sandwich. It's the idea. Build a sandwich. Anytime you're sitting down, you got something hard to say. Sandwich it with encouragement. Bread, encouragement, the meat, the confrontation. Surround with encouragement. That reminds them that you love them, you value them, you respect them, even though you've got to point this thing out. So surround your rebuke with encouragement. Third, return a curse with a blessing. When the other person curses you, when they hurt you, when they cause you pain, do not return the favor. Give them a blessing instead. 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. There is good news about that habit of escalation. The good news is it takes two. Escalation only happens in a relationship if both partners are hitting back and forth. You can stop escalation in its tracks if you will give a blessing instead of a curse. Now, your partner in this relationship may deserve a curse. doesn't matter. Grace. You give them something good. You give them a kind word. You give them a gracious offer. You bless them instead of cursing them. Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Brings escalation to an end. That's grace. Fourth way you show grace in a conversation, you choose to believe the best. You choose to believe the best. Paul defines love in 1 Corinthians 13, and he says in verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. True love between two people, whether parent and child, married couple, friends, true love believes all things and hopes all things. What does that mean? That means that you always believe the best. When that person does or says something that could be interpreted in multiple ways, you are going to choose to default to the best possible explanation. You're going to believe the best until you're proven wrong. Now, that's opposite of human nature. When we are faced with multiple options, which do we tend to to assume? The worst. I'm going to assume the worst till you prove me wrong. No, assume the best till you're proven wrong. Assume the best, whether the person deserves it or not. That's love. That's grace. Even if this person has hurt you in the past and you look at their track record and you think, statistically speaking, the worst explanation is probably true. You say, I don't care. Grace assumes the best until proven wrong. That's grace. You assume the best, you believe the best, you hope the best. 
in the, con- in the midst of the conversation. The best about their words, their meaning, their intentions. Okay, so the first ingredient you must include is grace. Second ingredient you must include is truth. Paul says in Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each of you with his neighbor. But what does that actually look like to speak truth to one another? Well, it includes a couple things. Number one, obvious, don't lie. If you're lying to each other, that's the opposite of truth. Now, remember, when we talk about telling the truth, we're defining truth as God does, not as most politicians do. We're talking about absolute truth. Truth without exaggeration, truth without spin, no misleading, no none of that stuff. You are telling the truth. That's the first thing, but that's kind of the easier one. It's easy to, to just tell the truth, to not lie. The second thing, and really the, the heart of what Paul is getting at, truth isn't just not lying. Truth is being courageous to share something even when it's hard. That's what truth is. To speak truth to one another means that we say hard things to each other out of love. That's the meaning of the message, of the title of this message. Speak the truth in love. God wants you to speak truth one another in a, in a loving way, in a gracious way, but you don't hold back. You share truth. Those of us, if you're like me, who struggle with the fourth bad habit, withdrawal and avoidance, you're going to struggle with this one. You don't like tension. You don't like emotional conversations. You want out. And so when you see something in your friend's life or your spouse's life that needs to be addressed, a sin, a weakness, you see that, you know you need to address it, but your temptation is to hold back. You you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to shake things up. You don't want to hurt their feelings. What we need to realize, I'm looking at myself here too, what we need to realize is that when we hold back from speaking hard truth, what we are being is selfish. When I do that, when I choose to hold back, it's because I care more about my comfort and my harmony with that person than I care about their good. And harmony at the expense of truth is sin. What that person needs is not harmony with you. What they need is truth. Truth shared in love, but they need truth. So be willing to share the truth, even when it's hard. Be courageous to share the truth. We need to remember what Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. When you hold back from sharing a truth that needs to be shared, then what are you being in that moment? You're being an enemy. You're holding back something God wants you to share. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I count myself blessed when friends have wounded me in love, in grace, but pointed out where I have fallen short. Let's do that for one another. Speak the truth. That's the third, second thing that needs to be included in a conversation. Third, and the balance to truth, is humility. Got to have humility. Now, what does humility mean? It's a common word you hear in church. Everybody, when they hear humility, they think it means to be real down on yourself, to think real lowly. That's not actually accurate. Biblical humility means that you think accurately about yourself. You see yourself as God sees you. That's what it means to be humble. And, and, and so how should I see myself? Well, humility means that I see myself as a human being who, like all human beings, is prone to sin and error. I see that I could be wrong in any given conversation. I see that I have blame to share in any relationship that is struggling. That's what humility looks like. Proverbs 11.2 tells us, when pride comes, in comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. When we practice humility, we are bringing wisdom to our relationships. And practically speaking, what that means is that in any given relationship, you acknowledge your faults. You acknowledge your faults. In any relationship that is struggling, let me promise you, there is enough blame to go around. 
Neither partner is perfect because we're human beings. We always sin. Now, now one person may, may have much more of the blame. They may deserve much more, but the other person is not off the hook. All of us make mistakes in any given relationship, and you need to own up to that. Acknowledge your faults, the things that you have done wrong in, in a relationship. And then second, be willing to be proven wrong. There is nothing more insufferable than sitting down and talking to someone who is absolutely convinced they can't be wrong. I hate that. No reason to talk to you. This is a pointless conversation. You're a fool. You've you got to realize you're a human being. Even on something that seems absolutely crystal clear to you, you're a human being, so you could be wrong. On those things that you hold tightly, those beliefs that you hold tightly, you still have to be open to the reality that you could be wrong because you're human. I love this about Brian Fisher, our senior pastor, the guy that I report to. Brian, if you know him, he's a strong guy with strong opinions. Very, very smart, very, very clear thinker, very strategically focused. He has strong convictions and strong opinions, and yet he is always willing to be proven wrong. Love that about him. Sit down with him, and he may articulate an opinion that he holds very, very strongly, and then he lets you respond. And if you can show him the data, if you can show him the logic that a different option is better, he will quickly say, you're right. Change his opinion because he is humble. He knows he could be wrong on any given issue. So be humble. Approach a conversation in a teachable way. You're willing to accept your faults. You're willing to be shown that you are wrong. That's the third necessary ingredient of good communication. Finally, the fourth is patience. James 1.19, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Got to be patient. When a conversation gets tense, when it gets emotional, you got to be patient. My key word for you, when, when you sit down and you're having a tense conversation, or maybe you get surprised by it, you're just having an easy conversation with a friend or, or with your spouse, and all of a sudden things get tense, things get emotional. What I want you to remember, the key word, slow down. Slow down. In the middle of that conversation, you will be tempted to be rash. You will be tempted to to respond quickly. You will be tempted to to vent your emotions quickly. Slow down. That's the key to a godly conversation. You slow down. You choose the path of patience. Patience is absolutely key to making a relationship work. Patience is how you get a handle on your emotions. You you can't control that that you have this emotion of anger or frustration boiling up in you, but you can't control what you do with it. If you slow things down, then you can think about what is wisdom. What, What should I do? How should I respond to this? So slow things down. Take a moment to just step back and think about the conversation. In fact, according to James, the only thing you should do quickly when your emotions go up is what? Listen. That's the only thing you should be quick to do is listen to the other person. Step back for a moment and just think, what is, what is this person saying? What is their body language saying? Why am I feeling emotional? What unmet expectations are making me feel this way? Why are they feeling angry? Take a moment to just listen. Slow down your speaking, slow down your emotions. Just hit pause. That's key to having godly communication, godly relationships, is that you slow things down. You're slow to speak. You're slow to get angry. You hit the pause button. Now, sometimes you you really, literally, you need to hit the pause button. You just need to postpone the conversation. You need to wait until you can cool down for a minute so you can think things through. My wife and I have a rule in our household. We will have no serious conversation after 10 p.m. None at all. It's after 10 p.m. We're tired. 
And when we're tired, we say stupid things. And so if 10 p.m. hits and we're in the middle of a tense conversation, we literally hit the pause button. And we tell one another, I love you, even if I don't feel it at the moment. And then we roll over and we go to sleep. Because when we wake up the next morning fully rested, chances are really good that things are going to look a lot better in the clear light of day. All of a sudden, the thing that was bugging us is gone. You don't have to work it out tonight. You don't. You can hit pause. You can cool down. Think things through. Pray about it. Slow down when things get tense. Be willing to be patient. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to get angry. All right. Four things that you got to include in any communication, in any relationship, in any conversation, if you, want to go, if you want it to go well. Grace, truth, humility, and patience. Those are the ingredients that make for a good conversation. Now with that on the table, the last thing that I want to leave you with, and probably the most important principle I will give you this morning, when it comes to communication, you have to work at it. If you want to learn how to communicate well with your friends, with your parents, with your spouse, with your roommates, you got to work at it. You learned to talk when you were two years old, but you didn't learn to communicate. That's a totally different thing. It takes a lifetime of diligent study and practice to get good at the art of communication. And sadly, some people never get there. Just flip on a reality TV show for a minute and you'll see lots of grown people who don't know how to talk. It's not that they can't say words, it's that they can't use their words to bless. Instead, all they can do is curse and hurt with their language. They don't know how to communicate because it takes a lifetime of diligent study to learn how to communicate. So here I am, I'm 37 years old. I've been talking for 35 years. In fact, you pay me to talk. That's my job, to get up here and talk to you guys. And yet, over this past year, what have I been reading about more than anything else? Communication. How to communicate well. Why? Because I have so much to learn I have so much to learn about this incredibly hard thing called communication. And it's so important to me because my marriage, my parenting, my job, my relationships with you, it's all built on whether or not I can communicate well. When it comes to communication, let me challenge you. You must always be learning for the rest of your life. You need to be reading books on communication. You need to have conversations with people about communication, helping you understand your weaknesses. You got to practice. You got to work at it. You got to pray through it. You got to work to become a good communicator. To that end, I want to give you the two best books I've found in the last 10 years on the subject of communication. First one, A Lasting Promise. I want you to write these down. Write them down. They'll be in my notes if you don't have a pen. A Lasting Promise, A Christian Guide to Fighting for Your Marriage by Stanley Trath and McCain and Brian. That is, in my opinion, the single best book that has ever been written on the subject of marriage short of the Bible. It's that good, seriously. In the last 10 years, Julie and I have been married for 10 years, that book has helped us more than any other. That's the book that has the four researchers and talks about the four bad habits and helps you identify and fight them incredibly useful. If you're getting married, married, or want to be married, which is almost all of you, you need to read this book. Essential material. Second book that's been incredibly helpful, Crucial Conversations. It's about how to have good communication when a conversation gets tense. It gives you tools for talking when the stakes are high by Patterson, Grinney, Macmillan, and Switzler. This book is, is really good because it's so practical. Communication feels like this really hard thing to wrap your minds around. How do you actually talk well with someone? This boils it down. 
to really concrete, easy-to-apply principles that you put in your life. They work. They really do. So here's my encouragement to you. And I, and I want to really strongly encourage you of this. Really strong. If, if either of those books, if you haven't read them, as strongly as I can, I want to encourage you to read it this summer. Pick one of those books and read it. If you're married, read it with your spouse. Read it with a friend. Talk about it. Discuss it. It will change your life. Because communication is the foundation of all relationships. So pick one of these books and read it this summer. It will change you for the better. It will teach you how to communicate well with your, with your spouse, with your parents, with your kids, with your coworkers, with your friends, with your neighbors, with everybody. You've got to be working at communication. Always be learning how to communicate better. It is essential to a well-lived life. Let's pray for God's help to learn. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are a God who communicates with us. You did not leave us in the dark. You gave us your word. You, you have revealed yourself to us. You have spoken to us through your son, Jesus Christ. You, you speak to us through your spirit. Thank you that you are a God who communicates. Thank you that you give us these principles in your word that, that teach us how to communicate with one another, how to love people with our words, how to bless them and help them with the words that we speak. I pray, Father, that you would help us to grow to be better communicators. I confess every single one of us in this room, myself included, we so often use our words in ways that hurt, in ways that harm. Father, we're such sinners. That sin runs so deep. We, we don't even realize that we're doing it. All of a sudden, the word comes out of our mouth that hurts someone deeply. God, please help us to grow, to speak with greater grace and truth with greater humility and patience. I pray, Father, that you would teach us to, to speak as Jesus spoke, to speak the truth in love. Please, Lord, work on us. Convict us of our bad habits. Convict us of the things that we say that are unhelpful. Challenge us and draw us to the cross to get all of our needs met by you so that rather than leeching off one another, we can give and bless one another with our words. I pray, Father, that you would build strong marriages, strong friendships, strong families in our church by teaching us how to communicate well with one another. Do whatever it takes, Lord, to grow us to be good communicators. Help us to put in the work. Let us not be lazy, Lord. Please let us read, let us study, let us meditate. Let us become and grow to be great communicators so that you might be honored and so that your people might be blessed. We pray all of this in the name of your blessed son, Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. Get those notes and review them. Let this stuff sink in.